Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live, and it is my honor tonight to welcome our guest, Aaron B. Koontz, writer, director, producer, filmmaker. Aaron, thank you for being here with us. How are you doing tonight? I'm great. I'm great. It's such a pleasure to be here. And it's an honor to talk to you. Uh, We're going to get to your movie, The Pale Door, in just a little bit. But looking over your career, you spent a vast majority of your career, you started off as a producer. And it wasn't until like 2012 uh, where you started directing some shorts and you started to write. Uh, So what led you to finally start uh, directing and writing? I mean, I think my first love was always writing. I I was a film school graduate and I always wrote things as a kid. I just didn't think that I could actually do that for a living, at least especially as a filmmaker. And I I really became a director to protect my writing and then became a producer to protect my my directing. So it just kind of became this natural kind of thing. But it starts with the writing. That's always what I'm most excited about. What kind of gets me up in the morning every day is like hoping to get to, you know, get get started on some kind of a different original genre story. So if you were to arrange them for like most passionate about and so on, would you put writing first? And what would be second? That's what I'm curious about. Producing or directing? I was worried you were going to ask me about which of my movies. (laughs) Sophie's Choice. I was like, oh, no. Uh, But yeah, writing is definitely first. It'd be writing, then directing, then producing probably. But but oddly enough, producing is what comes the most natural to me. And we're having a lot of success doing. and And I love it. I mean, I get to work you know, we're developing scripts, so they're still writing in that producing aspect, and we're helping these directors get their visions on the screen. And, um, you know, we're having a lot of success with that as a producing team, but I still, you know, still yearn to write direct. So probably write first, direct, then then producing. Now, producing in the filmmaking world and television as well is the largest umbrella. I mean, there's, I mean, everything that's done is towards the production and the creation of something uh, in entertainment, there are producers that they don't even have to step foot on set, and they're still very active producers. When it comes to what you do and how you like to produce, do you really like to be actively involved in the project that you are producing? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, we are as we're expanding. I'm trying. I, I just can't be everywhere at once. I mean, we have in 2022 alone. We have what looks like at least nine films that are releasing, possibly 10 that are coming out through Papistry Pictures. So there's there's so much that's active. I just, I can't be everywhere at once. So I am starting to kind of empower some other folks that I trust that can be there as a proxy for me. But no, I mean, I love, I love the process of filmmaking. Like I want to be at the script stage, talking about how a character is being developed, how we're going to put them in this scene and how that's going to move to this scene and how to pull off you know, these, these bigger set pieces, we take a lot of pride in, you know, putting dollars on the screen is something that we try to do all the time. And when we're able to have control, there's been a couple of movies I've produced that we don't have control over. And I've learned kind of my lessons on that mm-hmm. and what that means. Um, and so we're trying to maintain that control going forward. Um, but when we can have that control, it is just a really, really beautiful process and something that, you know, I don't think we're ever going to stop doing one way or the other. That is awesome. Now, let's talk about The Pale Door. For our viewers out there, The Pale Door came out in 2020. It is available for on it is available on AMC Plus for streaming and correct me Aaron if I'm wrong, it's also available to rent or buy on the 
the regular transactional TVOD, Voodoo, uh, yeah, Amazon, and all that. Those other good. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much everywhere. But yeah, AMC Plus, Shutter, it's it's there now as well. They had they did their licensing of it through RLJ, which is the main distributor. Awesome, awesome. Now, the Pale Door, a little brief synopsis, as you will read on IMDb. It's a Western horror that uh, basically involves a coven of witches. Now. As I told you before we went live, I really loved this movie. I enjoyed it. And uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, Western-type movies to begin with. But I do have a a soft spot for Western horrors. And you blended in some really fascinating ideas into this film. First off, it's obvious, obviously, it takes place sometime in the 1800s probably post-Civil War era. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though it's not directly mentioned to us in the film, by the names of some of the towns that are mentioned, I'm assuming it's in Georgia. Is that accurate? It's 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 a little Oklahoma. We, we tried to deliberately have it be a little ambiguous as far as where it's at, mm-hmm. except for there was, refer- there was a reference to Danvers, which is the origin of Salem, where the, the where Pearl was taken. So there's a reference to that, but all we know is that that is far away. Yeah. So that's, we deliberately keep it there, but there are, there's a couple of references to some Oklahoma cities as well, but we deliberately keep it a little vague. For me, what set the Georgia thing in motion was Macon. Uh, Macon, which yeah. isn't, that's what for me says, okay, this is somewhere in Georgia or close to Georgia. But anyway, uh, you mentioned Salem. Okay. As I'm watching this film, uh, you mentioned the mention of Cotton Mathers is brought up. Now, for anybody that has studied or seen documentaries about the 1692 Salem witch trials, they know that Cotton Mather was a very prominent figure during that time, and he had a big hand in what happened in 1692 up in Salem, Massachusetts. So it really confused me. I'm like, Cotton? But this is the 1800s. He's long dead. And as the movie progresses, we find out exactly what is going on. Uh, as you were right, now you co-wrote this script uh, with like two other people, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. Whose idea was it to bring in 1692 into the 19th century? It, that, was, that was mine. That, that really stemmed out of, I had another script that was called The Dark Day that I wasn't a huge fan of that dealt with the Salem witch trials. And it was a a number of fictional ideas that were around that. So I had done a lot of research about it, but the script just didn't materialize the way that I had wanted. And then we had actually, uh, Cameron Burns, my main co-writer and I, we had written a Western and that wasn't really feeling right either, but we were able to kind of combine those two here. And that's really where it kind of hit a sweet spot. But the, I got really excited at the, the notion of kind of bringing this history into the witches because I thought there was something fascinating just about the parallel of, you know, a gang of cowboys and a coven of witches and the familial ties that that can have and mm-hmm. how you, you find this family across your life. And there are a lot of rejects in a way, you know, the, the gang of cowboys are, have been rejected from their families in different, different situations. Uh, the women have been rejected for their ideologies or just being different, you know, which is a lot of what happened uh, in Salem. And I think you, you form this new familial unit. And I thought there was just a cool parallel there. Plus, there is something just about these women who have been underestimated their entire lives. Yeah. And I think that there's men, especially even in the, the 1890s, when the, you know, the main story is taking place, there's also a parallel there to them underestimating some of those women in their lives. 
And and that really kind of comes to a head when they get to, to the ghost town. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And the cast that you put together or were a part of putting together, they blended in perfectly. Uh, from the brothers, the Duncan brothers, played by Zachary Knighton, and Jacob De, uh, Devin Druid, uh, the outlaw groups to the women, the witches, uh, Pat Healy, Bill Sage were previous guests of mine. I've spoken mm-hmm. to both of them. Great guys, easy to talk to, very professional. Uh, I gotta say, uh, my favorite character from the Outlaws in this movie is Dodd, is Bill yeah. Sage's character. He's really mean, gruff exterior, but as the film progresses, we see that he, you know, he is human. He's not this cold-hearted outlaw. And, you know, that's, he has the, the most prominent character arc out of any of them. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think he's, you know, if Jake is the heart of the story that you're kind of following as a younger brother, Dodd is in some ways almost the antagonist. It's kind of like creating that change and Jake's creating that change in him. And we, we, that's why, you know, Dodd's always wearing black and Jake is always wearing white. And at the beginning, there's a scene at the train where Jake encounters uh, Pinkerton and he's not able to shoot her mm-hmm. because of, you know, still kind of latching onto his innocence. And Dodd has a Pinkerton. He could just let get away, but he torments and puts a spur in the mouth and does all this. And they and we cross cut that scene deliberately so that we can kind of illustrate where they're, how far apart they are. So when it gets toward the end and they're in that church and they're literally, literally sitting next to each other talking about family mm-hmm. and what that means, you understand that we all come from these different backgrounds. We all have trauma in our lives we all have the strife and we get so it's we we try so hard to just say who can or can't fit into something when we're all just kind of searching for acceptance and love absolutely and and i think that you know dodd and bill just does such a remarkable job i i feel like in that moment when he's like trying to hold back the tears you know and reaching that point and reaching that point of realizing that i you're not the only one who lost a brother and, and that's when Jake kind of connects that. And then I, I think that the reason why Jake's able to do what he's able to do is because of Dodd. Like Dodd is what allows him to do that. But yeah, I mean, that was uh, just such a pivotal, pivotal character. And Bill is, you're completely correct. Bill is just the absolute best mm-hmm. and, and just so insightful. I mean, the guy's a poet, you know, in real life, Bill Sager's a poet. And he, you know, just has this kind of, there's just something to him. And I just yeah. like the idea that maybe Dodd was a poet as well, you know, in that kind of way. We brought a lot of Bill into that character. Now, Jacob uh, in the movie, in the end, ends up making a sacrifice to save his brother. Uh, after the rest of the outlaws are pretty much slain, he sacrifices himself in order for the witches to let his brother le- live and leave. And I love the moment between the two brothers uh where jacob encourages duncan to forgive their dad okay uh now when you guys were writing this how important was that the fact that jacob in one night learns the truth about what his family had done they were outlaws they stole everything that's how they got the ranch and all that good stuff and jacob turns to duncan and asks him to forgive their dead father how do you feel about that? And you know, when you saw the final piece, I mean, yeah, well, you're talking about something that's very, very personal to me. You know, um, this is, 
I wanted to make so this is a lot of this is about my brother and our father. Um, and I have a very tumultuous relationship with my father. And this was partly talking to myself that I need to, in order to kind of move on past some of those issues that I have, I need to forgive him, yeah. you know? So part of this was, I just leaned into what, what I needed to do through my own counseling and, you know, and sessions and all this, like the stuff that I'm trying to do. And, and that's what happens. You write about what, you know, you know, these things can be cathartic if you're writing about these personal experiences. And, you know, my brother is uh, an addict and has been a recovering addict. And I felt the need to kind of take care of him for a long time, but then he's also now kind of coming into his own and I have to also let him go yeah. and let him be who he is now and, and empower him in a different way. And that's part of what this is about as well. But um, you know, but there was a moment where I actually had to sit down and tell my brother the truth of our family and that it wasn't what he thought. Yeah. And so that speech with, you know, there with that Stan Shaw, which I think stands so great, uh, you know, with Jake um, that he does as Lester, I, that speech is, you know, based a little bit. I mean, it's obviously very different circumstances yeah. and it's not exactly the same, but I had to have that moment before. So that was it, it, it's, but I will say it took a while to reach that ending. So the original ending, not a lot of people know this, but I'll tell you the original ending of the pale door was Maria and Pearl are standing there. And then uh, his brother comes out, but they've tricked him again. And it's not actually his brother. And then the witches take him away. And then, and then they, he gets locked in this room. He's like running away from the witches and trying to escape. And he gets locked in this room. And then there's this crow like creature and the crow creature like swallows him whole. Wow. And yeah, it's like this crazy dark thing and Duncan's dead the whole time and everyone dies and all this. And I like the idea you ended up going with. Well, it, it ended up, and that's really credit to Keith Lansdale, who we wrote with this, and Joe Lansdale, the iconic author of, you know, Cold in July and Bubba Hotep and all that. And they really were like, Aaron, you're writing this heartfelt story about brothers and about, you know, forgiveness. You need to lean into that. Yeah. And then, so then we went back and we were able to find what is absolutely the right ending. Yeah. But I do think some horror fans are like, what? That's what I want, you know, and I get that. But but that's not the movie I was trying to make. No. You know, I wanted to make a movie that was about, again, it was about my brother, about our struggles, about the idea that the sins of the father don't have to be passed down exactly. and that you can, you can forge your own path. And it's the same thing. And the witches are a parallel to that. Yeah. And thank you, know? you for sharing that story because I mean, it explains so much on why that scene resonated with me and it felt so authentic and real. And trust me, there is plenty in this movie for horror fans. Let's talk about the crow coming out of the mouth wow uh when uh you know he passed out on the ground and then you start seeing the head of the crow peeking out of his mouth uh how difficult was that to shoot it was it was really difficult i mean we we had to you know live cast stan shaw and then when we were on set we only had the crows are very expensive mm -hmm. and we couldn't get them to do what we needed actually the scene where the crow flies out the window it would not fly up and out the window i wanted to fly up and leave but it kept like just going over and just down so that shot i actually flipped it upside down so that way it looks like he's flying up 
but it's really just the crow just going to his holder on the other side of the window. But you have to come up with those solutions because just, you know, this shit's not working. Um, But, but yeah, we just, we didn't have a lot of time because we couldn't get the crows to do what I really wanted. I'm not a very good crow director I've learned. So I had to, you know, couldn't really get them to their spots. And so we actually had to do a couple pickup shots later with the dummy and, and we molded a fake crow. It's actually a taxidermy crow, not a fake crow, excuse me. So full taxidermy crow that we were able to push through the head. Um, but yeah, you just had to do that in pieces. And, you know, it's, uh, my mom loved Stan Shaw as a kid. That's part of the reason why I hired him. She loved fried green tomatoes and, and so would always talk about how great of an actor he was. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so this was, or was it, wait, was it still Magnolia's? What was he in? Was it fried green tomatoes? I can't remember which one it was, but there was a movie my mom loved that Stan Shaw was in. He was not in Steel Magnolias. There's fragrant tomatoes in I think. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but that he was in, and my mom always talked about his performance. And then to, to like come full circle, I'm like, yeah, mom, I did hire that guy, but I'm gonna kill him in a church that's upside down by pushing a crow through his mouth. So, did you really you know. tell her that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, she's still not happy about it. Yeah. So that's a fun yeah. It was hard. Story. It was hard, but it was fun. It's fun. I love. I mean when you're making any films, I think it's important to like build the set pieces mm-hmm. and know where you have to like save costs and then know where you have to spend more time to make things happen. And we, I mean, God, this movie, you know, on the pale door specifically, we lost so much time. We lost some of our funding in the middle of shooting. Mm. And then we also, we had category five tornadoes Jeez. that came through and shut down part of the shoot. So there's a lot of set pieces, uh, exteriors and things that I wanted to spend more time on and in the woods and all this, but we never, we just had to go. I mean, it was just, we had really elaborate, you know, setups that were done and, and this different blocking and everything that my DP and I worked on. Then we got there and I was like, Andrew Barrett is my cinematographer. I'm like, all right, Andrew, just put this thing on your shoulder. It's pouring down rain we got to go. I don't know. I don't know what we're doing. We got to figure it out. And because we had no time. Did so, you, uh, did you guys actually shoot this in Georgia or somewhere else? In Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Um, outside okay. of in Guthrie, Guthrie, Oklahoma. Okay. Now, I love when I I watch movies, I can see each individual director's, you know, how they do things. And I love when you that you mentioned the upside down church when they were in that church and you had everything flipped upside down to where the crosses were inverted, which is like a demonic symbol, sign of evil, which is what they're dealing with in the witches. And then it slowly very slowly the camera writes itself uh, back up because for a while there you start thinking that the witches are screwing with them. They flip the room upside down because these guys, they don't know what's real and what's not real. Uh, they yeah. At some point they realize that these witches can not only manipulate their physical surroundings, they can screw with their heads as well. And just that thought alone is terrifying if you put yourself in their shoes is that they can manipulate and you can't trust your own eyes and believe what you're seeing and what you're not seeing now let's talk about the witches uh mm-hmm. i loved that you showed them burned because they all got burned at the stake uh whether it was what happened in salem did not just happen in salem it happened all over the world uh, around that time period and well before and well after. So I love that you uh, portrayed the witches as burned and all disfigured. Uh, what really stuck out to me were the noses. You went really old old school, like paying tribute to like 
what we think of as a witch, uh, like the Wizard of Oz with the long, crooked nose. Was that done mm -hmm. deliberately? And that was that done by you? Yeah, I wanted, I told uh, Becky Ingram and David Greathouse, my makeup team, that I wanted raw dolls, the witches, but burnt at the stake. And I will clarify, there were, so, and I know a lot of folks think this, but yes, the majority in Salem, they weren't really burned. Most of them were hanged or stoned, mm -hmm. but there were women overseas who were burned. Oh, yeah. And the story of Maria, where they do that flashback with Cotton Mather, not to get too much on a tangent, uh, but she, that story was a real story I had read where there was a woman who was going to be hanged in a town because they accused her of being a witch, but she was pregnant. And she fled just trying to survive it long enough to, to have her baby. And then they tracked her down and then, and then killed her in that town square. Now, whether or not they burned her or not, I don't know, but I, I just thought that was such a horrific yeah. image. So we leaned into that, but yeah, that's, that's what I, I just wanted. And I did all this research on, on different types of witches and we just took little things that we, we picked and chose, you know, about the familiars and, you know, what do they really use and the idea that the crows is really, you know, how they see and they can, you know, maybe they turn back and forth, but, you know, that's left, you know, for the, the viewer to decide yeah. ultimately if that's the case, but but yeah, and just what they can control and not control and whether or not the brothel is the brothel even there, yeah. you know, I mean, I think there's it's weird that I think some people don't catch on to that. I thought we made it overt when they come back and it's like yeah, not there yeah, at all. Yeah, when that scouting team goes don't. out. No, no. Yeah, it was very obvious when they first got to the town and Dodd says, what, your town is just as one little shack here? And they sent out a search party. They come back. We didn't find anything. And then Pearl comes back and leads them into this town where the brothel is. So, yeah, they. for me, it was obvious. They can, they can make structures appear and disappear uh yeah that's great what i thought was amazing was uh yeah they did burn a pregnant witch at the stake but the birth of pearl oh my god <laughs> i did not see that coming uh again what what made you come up with that that what we'll see that kind of spawned this idea that pearl was this you know, everyone else, all the other witches, in theory, would have come from all these different cities that Maria's kind of like drawn to this town and, and the things that have kind of happened there. And that town has stayed looking the same way that it did when she was burned, mm -hmm. right, at that time in, in the 1600s. And it's kind of remained there. And but Pearl was different because she was pregnant when she was burned. And this idea that, you know, maybe a crow was there and was burnt with her or something. And, and I was like, and that was when the original ending was going to be this crow birthed creature. Mm -hmm. And the idea was going to be that Pearl turned into this like six foot tall, you know, crow creature thing. And, but I love just the imagery of how striking that is of just this woman who's, you know, bearing her soul and, and, and has died in order to try and, 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 and tried desperately just to keep her child alive, but it ended up still being killed in such a gruesome way that what would happen if you were brought back to life and not through the occult, you mm -hmm. know, and through, so it just was, you know, like how, how messed up can I get, you know? And I will say there was um, one film festival that this is pre COVID we, before COVID came and we couldn't play at any festivals, but there was a film festival that was like, look, we love the movie, but that scene, I love we it. don't, <laughs> yeah, we don't, that's not for us. And I was like, well, that's staying in. Yeah, so. I love that. I think that, yeah, yeah, you made the right choice there. So what does that mean? Pearl is the girl that uh, Maria gave birth to. 
So what significance does that give Pearl? Uh, Maria is obviously the leader of the Coven of Witches. Uh, Pearl is her daughter. So in the hierarchy of things, what is Pearl's significance to the whole Coven, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, we've so we have like, you know, full backstories of everyone and everything and what's there. But I will say there's a reason without getting giving everything away. I would say there's a reason why Pearl is the one who's able to leave and 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 whether or not Pearl left and was captured or Pearl set herself up as a trap in order to lure people back is for the audience to kind of figure out. Yeah. But but there was, you know, there was a descendant of Cotton Mather who still is like kind of trying, like knows about this. Mm-hmm. That was my idea that, and, and I thought it was fun just to play with this idea that, you know, the real evil in this movie, it's it's not Cowboy's good, which is bad. I think people, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen some reviewers mention that. And it's like, I, I don't think you're further from the truth. Like, I think who's bad is Cotton Mather. Oh yeah. Like that's, that's the evil in this film and evil only creates more evil, right? And so he did this and then he led the witches on this, this journey. And then the same way, and that parallels then the father of Jake and Duncan and did this bad thing. And then that sent them on their journey. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us to break that cycle. But but Pearl has, you know, there's little subtleties. Like she has all these bruises and stuff on her face uh, when you first meet her. But then when she gets to the town, the bruises are gone. Yeah. Um, you know, there's different things that like you're realizing that there is something about the town itself. And that gives them maybe some power. But, uh, but yeah, she's, you know, if we were to do a sequel or something like that, which I'm not currently planning on it, but if we were, uh, there was, there's a lot to explore with the Pearl Maria dynamic. And I think Pearl might even be a little power hungry eventually too. Uh, yeah, definitely. And obviously because like you mentioned, Pearl was kidnapped from the town. There are people outside that know of this place of this coven that they're living there and uh, they're trying to keep it as secret as possible because the outlaws robbed the train thinking that gold is being transported. So when they grab the trunk and it's no gold, it's this teenage girl who has a mask, like a Hannibal Lecter mask over her mouth tied up. And Dot had the right idea when when he closed the trunk back on her and says, hey kid, anybody who does this to a girl, there's nothing good that's going to come out of this. And he had the right idea. Unfortunately, they didn't listen to him. Uh, Did you have any difficulty in finding the person that you wanted to portray Pearl? Yeah, actually, that was tricky. And yes, Dodd is supposed to be the audience. Like, there's always that person in a horror film that you're like, why aren't you doing this? Yeah. You know, and I wanted Dodd to be that person, you know, and be the one who's like, uh, and then even there's a moment where he's like, you know, we're, that's not how, that's not who we are. He says something to Jake and he's like, we're a bunch of outlaws. Yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. You know, like, no, that's exactly who we are. Like, like, let's just embrace it. But, but yeah, no, the search for Pearl was tough and, and finding, you know, when, when Natasha finally came on, um, I was really, to me, I just wanted to find someone who had, that could sit there stoically. I really wanted the scene. I was casting in particular of the scene when the trunk opens and you reveal her. And then when her and Dot are staring at each other. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted there to be this, I wanted it in the eyes. And Natasha just has these like huge eyes that just, you know, evoke so much that's going on that you can just feel the sinisterness behind those eyes. Yeah. And I thought that was really important. So we, we actually went through a number of people uh, and she came along late. She was one of the last people that we cast, but, um, but yeah, she's wonderful. Oh, she was and great. she's, 
she's doing the new Boz Lerman film, yeah. uh, Elvis biopic and stuff. Now she's on to, you know, bigger and better things. And I'm so excited for her, but she's wonderful. Oh, she yeah. was great. Uh, so one, another thing that's not really explained and it's sort of left up to the audience to come up to their own conclusion is the ritual they were doing after they had slaughtered the majority of the outlaws in bathing in blood. Uh, we do get little bits of clues from Maria when she's talking about Jacob after she learns that he's pure blood, meaning he's a virgin, he's unsoiled. And she says that, you know, he will, she says that he will sustain us for decades while they're doing that bloodbath ritual. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's great that you did not explain that and you left that up to the audience to sort of kind of piece together on their own. But I want to hear your personal take. What is the significance of bathing in blood? And what did Maria mean in regards to Jacob sustaining them for decades? Well, it's been it's been over a year since it's out, so I don't mind finally saying it. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it, so the first there is a Bathory reference, of course, very obviously, um, you know, who famously bathed in blood to keep her youthful look. Mm -hmm. So we took a little bit of that. So the idea here is that the you know and jake is both doubly innocent so he's both a virgin and he's never killed someone exactly so that combination makes his blood so pure and if you think of in the 1890s like that's rare mm -hmm. you know that, that wasn't something that happened a lot for someone who was still an adult so that was important that they could find um and but the idea is that they bathe in the blood of corrupt men to keep their youthful look otherwise if they don't they're going to stay looking as that burned version of themselves mm -hmm. so that that keeps them that allows them to show up as their youthful look or when they died you know yeah. or or in pearl's case it's she picked her most beautiful moment to to sustain and that's that's where she wants to look for the rest of her life um but everyone else is when they died that's when when they were taken and they're able to to maintain that look by doing that and then you know jake ends up being you know, he's the equivalent of multiple gangs that have come through. Because in my in my opinion, there's been tons of gangs that have come through this town. They get caught. People, they're bringing them in. They're luring them in in different ways. Um, for this gang, the brothel is what made sense. But for whoever else comes through the town, it could be, you know, it could just be a, a food, a little place to eat and drink. It could just be, it could be a church. Yeah. It could be anything that lures those people into that town to, to let them, you know, lower their inhibitions so that they can take advantage of them. And for this gang, it happened to be a brothel. Mm -hmm. And but but the idea is that Jake could sustain them. He could be, you know, he would be the equivalent of, you know, dozens of gangs because they've never encountered someone like that. So just his blood, if they spread it out alone, could could just take them even further. And then they were taking, you know, like Pat Healy, you see his hair getting cut. Mm -hmm. They're taking fingernails, you know, they're brushing the backs of, of, of Stan Shaw, these people. And they're doing that to take these, you know, skin cells, different things in order to do these rituals. You know, rituals and things so they can you know mess with them mm -hmm. you know and continue to do these witchy spells on them while they're stuck in the town now i also thought it was great that jacob is a gay character now again mm -hmm. you know something back in the 1800s you know of course there were you know uh, people that were gay lesbian trans whatever everything we have today but that's not something you talked about, shared. I mean, you just kept that to yourself. Uh, the fact, why, uh, the way I uh, rationalized why, let's say, you would make Jacob uh, uh, 
gay and for him to admit it to Maria would be a way for Jake to justify being a virgin. Uh, you know what I mean? Am mm -hmm. I close or completely yeah. off? Well, I, well, first and foremost, it was important to me that as I did research on these gangs, that they represented what was really out there. Mm -hmm. And the gangs were actually diverse. Yeah. But if you watch these Westerns, then none of them are diverse. Mm -hmm. There were women in those gangs. There were, there were, you know, black people in the gangs. There were young, young, old, different. In this. I mean, I wish I could have had someone, um, you know, I, I wanted to have a Mexican character in the gang as well, because that was very common in that era. Uh, but the casting didn't work out time-wise. But because um, we talked, actually, Clifton Collins at one point was going to be in the movie. So that was one person we had talked to. But you got, um, did have a Native American. Yep. Yeah. We had James White Cloud. And so I wanted a diverse, a diverse gang that was there. And then as I was researching this, I was like, wow, why would this kid? And you're completely correct. Like the first inclination was, why would this kid not, you know, every people getting married at 15, mm -hmm. you know? So it was just a very different world. So how could he still be a virgin and be, you know, 20 yeah. or 19, whatever it is. So that was one. And then I, I read, you know, some stories of all of these different gay cowboys that were just in hiding mm -hmm. for so long and no, they could never say anything about it because we think of, you know, I mean, our culture even 20 years ago and like the macho kind of idea behind it, but like take that times a thousand of yeah. what it was like in the old West times. So you bragged about all these things in such a way. So he would want to, that would be a personal secret from him, mm -hmm. you know? So I think, and I don't, and I think that when he's talked with Maria and that speech sitting at the table, it, it, the idea is that it comes up organically and like, she gets it. And then he just realizes that like, Oh no, she got this. And that's why she's like, your secret's safe from me. Like I won't tell anyone, yeah. you know? Um, but, but I didn't want it to be, hello, here's a gay character. Yeah. I wanted it to be the way it would be represented in that time period. Never, but then the also words never actually spoken, you know, I like boys or I yeah. like girls or any of that. Yeah. There was one, when he turns around with the gun, there's a moment where he says, you know, what are you going to offer me? You know, women, money, men, Yeah. you know, and that's mm -hmm. it. And there's some people who like, wait, what? They get confused because they haven't caught on the whole time. I'm like, that's fine. Because again, to me, I wanted it to just be natural and just, and I think too many times in movies, there's the gay character. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want it to be that. I wanted it to be a character who happened to be gay, Yeah. you know, and that also, but at the same time, you are correct. And that it does lead credence into why this person would not have, you know, would have remained a virgin. Now, the the women did not know of Jacob and him being of pure blood. But so the look on Maria's face when they're having that conversation and she lit up like, wow, we hit the jackpot here with this kid. Uh, he can sustain us for decades. Uh, I thought that was brilliant. Uh, that was absolutely yeah. brilliant. When you were directing... Uh, did you have a talk with her to say, you know, to make sure that that really came through in her emotions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Melora, Melora Walters, who plays Maria and is just, you know, from Paul Thomas Anderson fame and was someone that I've always wanted to work with. Like Magnolia was a very influential film to me growing up. And her look at the end of Magnolia is one of the reasons why I make movies. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this character, Maria, for Melora. Wow. I just, you know, that's that's what it was for. And when we first got to really talk about the character, that sit down with Jake, like I just wanted her, she is so cocky. She's completely in control the whole time. And there's just like aura about her that this, and I would tell, I would tell, you know, the other gang members that I'm like, look, you guys are looking at these, you know, these threads in a quilt trying to discern the pattern. 
and and Maria knows the pattern. She's looking, you know, above and sees everything. Yeah. And you think you know, but you don't. And and that was a fun thing to do. And it was just it was just about and her her and Devin actually already knew each other. They had been in a movie together called Cam mm-hmm. um, on Netflix a couple years back. And so they had a little bit of rapport. They played mother and daughter, mother and, and, and son in that movie, actually. So they had a little rapport, but I really we did that t- we did that a few times because I just really wanted to kind of lean into where almost she almost lets her guard down for a moment yeah. because it's like this lust this this kind of like pr- like primitive thing comes over her yeah. um you know that you just kind of like lose yourself for a minute but she still has to keep her composure yeah. and finding that balance that's that's just what it was, you know it, you get people like Melora Walters and you're okay so yeah, it was brilliantly brilliantly done uh before we move on there's you have a lot of stuff coming out with your production uh producing you're directing a lot more stuff so uh according to imdb which we all know it's not very accurate your next movie to be released is scare package 2. you're directing the the sequel to the horror anthology uh original scare package so are you excited about that i mean yeah well first i want to say i was looking at a couple of the uh the comments that are in there i think i answered a couple of those questions but i was going to say why she was a teenager was because again, that's the, that's, if you could choose to be any age your entire life at that point, what would you, what would you want to look? So yep. she chose that, that, that moment. And then someone said very astutely, and I completely agree. None of this would have happened if Jake could have just shot that woman. Exactly. And you are correct. You're hundred percent correct. And that sets in motion everything. And I think he realizes that, but that's also why that moment with her, with him and Duncan is so important because when he says, I couldn't take the shot and Duncan says, you know, I'm glad you couldn't do it. Like to me, that's one of my favorite lines in the movie because it's like, I'm just glad you're not like me that you couldn't do that. I'll, it's okay. Yeah. I am dying, but it's okay. And, and if in that moment, and then mixed with Dodd's moment later, are what allowed Jake to make this this you know this and, this and, ultimate sacrifice. And Duncan also knew. He says, "I know." He, he, yeah. he knew he let her go, and he didn't bring it up. Yeah. So that is yeah. a great moment in the movie uh so uh talking about but sorry you scare package yeah yes, well sorry. <laughs> you have a lot of stuff coming out so yeah. i mean yeah you're doing scare package too which uh f- upcoming project are you really excited about i mean you know so upcoming some things that i produced that as a company we're really, really we can't wait for we have lucky mckee's next movie which is old man starring stephen lang um that's gonna be coming out later this year awesome. it's, it's just a really really riveting story of a lost hiker in the woods comes upon stumbles upon a cabin and and meets Stephen Lang and and you you learn that neither one of them are who they say they are and it becomes this really interesting kind of uh, it, it's based on a play and it just goes to some really interesting places from there um, and then I also we produced a movie called Sorry About the Demon uh, which is Emily Higgins next film she made her first feature when she was twelve years old mm-hmm. uh, it's just just a wonderful wonderful filmmaker and uh, it's uh, a little bit of john hughes by way of james wan if you will right. um so it's a it's a horror comedy and and fun but very coming of age horror comedy which i don't think we've seen a lot of so that's that's really great um we have revealer that's coming out uh later like just in a few months uh later this year and and um you know so there, there's a lot of fun films but i will say nothing is quite like scare package you know uh scare packages you know that was a movie that was created 
by just me and my friends wanting to get together and throw around as much blood as we could and just bear hug the movies that we love and and just you know and under and just not take it all too seriously mm-hmm. whereas look i love what we did in the pale and i'm so proud of what we did there and i wanted to tell that kind of story but i also i also want to tell the completely ridiculous yeah. silly story that is scare package and scare package 2 is really kind of um I, I can't say too much but i will say that it's it's really i love horror sequels so i think i love watching you know the, these these line i'll watch every version of these things that come out they're schlocky i'm gonna have a friday 13th you know part four tattoo and wow. all this and i love them growing up and look they have problems some of them get more and more ridiculous and they don't necessarily always make sense and i was like i haven't seen someone really make a movie about that so scare package two is really about the horror tropes that come out of sequels and it's uh it's a lot of fun and i think it'll surprise people it's uh my favorite thing i've ever directed um and uh i, I did the movie is more one central story and then there's four small segments within that okay. um but uh we haven't announced those directors are but there's some people people will be very excited about now uh, you are your, with me your company were not involved with the original scare package is that accurate Oh no, we made that too. Okay. Yeah, we made that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I wrote and directed the core story of the original script. We produced that whole movie. Okay. Hired all those directors. So yeah, that was that was my baby. Awesome. Really. I hired all those directors and I wrote the core story and directed all the rad chad stuff and then the big finale with Joe Bob and yeah. everything. That was all me. And uh, so yeah, so we really we're really continuing that story. The, the new movie opens on Rad Shad's funeral. Okay. From the first film, and we kind of go from there um, now, into some wild places. So, yeah, yeah. It's very obvious you're a huge horror fan. Uh, have you always been a horror fan as long as you can remember? Yeah, I wasn't allowed to watch them as a kid, mm-hmm. so that was I had to sneak around to watch my horror <laughs> movies. And I remember going to the drive-in with my dad and we were watching something. I don't even know what it was, but I, I, I sat in the moonroof and I realized if I turned around, I could see Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh. So it was like Dream Child, I think, or, or it might've been Dream Child or Dream Warriors. I can't remember which one it was, but I remember watching that. And even though I couldn't hear it, it was just the visuals of oh, Nightmare on yeah. Elm Street just like affected me. That and Alien, I think were a big part. And then obviously Jaws, you know, was a huge influence. But those, I was not to watch any of those. So I had to sneak around constantly and, my grandmother got HBO for free and I would take a tape and I would go and record overnight in that like SLP mode. Yeah. So I'd come back the next day and I'd have, you know, three, four movies and then I didn't even know what they would be. And I would just watch them. That is you know? so clever. <laughs> yeah. And I did that every night and that was my kind of like horror education. So it was that forbidden fruit for me as a kid. So now I think I'm just, I don't know. I think I'm just destined to continue to frustrate my mother uh, by by just making these kinds of movies over and over again. And and it's what I'm honestly going to continue making for probably the rest of my life. I just I love them with such a a veracity. It's hard to explain. They just mean so much to me. Oh, I, I trust me. I totally understand. Do you have any interest at all to uh, when it comes to your company and your work to try something outside of horror just for just to see what it, would it, if you get any satisfaction out of it? Yeah, I mean, I've referenced Paul Thomas Anderson a few times. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. So like Licorice Pizza is one of my favorite movies of this year. So I do have that affinity, but I also have kind of found my voice, I feel like, as a director, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like I know what I'm trying to make and, and you know, and I've got uh, the, mo- the scripts that I've written right now are, are kind of in this, 
fun horror world, you know, that I kind of want to do. But I will say we love genre pictures. So it doesn't have to necessarily be horror. So sci-fi, thriller, you know, just anything that's real. But I love genre mashups. Like that's something. So horror comedy, you know, horror western. I've written a horror sports movie because I've never seen that before. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, so that's fun. It's called Demon Derby. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a roller derby team that inadvertently sells their souls to Satan. And, <laughs> you know, so, and they have to like, you know, in order to win the, the roller derby championship and uh, it kind of goes into wild places. But yeah, I mean, stuff like that. I think there's just ways to mix these genres together. And I think, I think you can tell whatever story you want in this kind of heightened genre oh, world. Yeah. And that's, that's part of what, you know, my company, Paper Street Pictures, and then I have another company called Blood Oath is like really about, like we want to do, one of our mottos is horror with heart. And we just want, and whether that's heart like scare package where you're just loving the genre and bear hugging it so much that you can't take it, or it's heart like with The Pale Door where it's about a brothers coming together and trying to understand these familial ties and trying to be the best version of yourself. I think you can just either have something to say, or you can have a lot of fun doing it or hopefully both. Yep. And that's, that's really what we want to make, you know, when all is said and done, I think we're going to continue in that world as much as we can. You could just tell by the look on your face, how much you just absolutely love what you do. And that is just, that is so contagious. Uh, the excitement and the love that you have for this genre. It's been an absolute treat talking to you, Aaron, for this last, it's been oh, over you. 45 minutes. It's been, and it just flew by. Thank you so much for coming on here, talking about the pale door, talking about all these great upcoming projects that sound really fun. And I'm really looking forward to watching. Uh, thank you for making movies. Thank you for making horror movies. Uh, it is people like you who keep the horror community thriving and growing and one of the most devoted communities and entertainment when it comes to fans. There is, there are no greater fans in the world than horror fans and no greater sense of camaraderie and a, and a bigger love than in the horror community. So on behalf of all of them, thank you. Thank you for doing oh, what wow, you do. Wow. Uh, it's awesome. Thank you to all our guests who tuned in today, whether you're watching live or later on. Again, if you haven't watched it, guys, go watch The Pale Door. It's available. If you have AMC+, Plus, you can watch it for free streaming. If not, you can rent it on any of the major transactional platforms. Again, thank you to Aaron. Thank you to all our viewers. On behalf of Aaron B. Kuntz and myself, stay safe and stay walking. Good night, everybody. Thanks.